with these distributed energy resources, the flow of electricity, the way we place demand on the system is fundamentally different. So ultimately, the intelligence that we need to have is increasingly important. And the data that's required to achieve that, whether it's from IoT type devices across our network or modeling to predict and anticipate the behaviors of the network is fundamentally different. So that's the transition that we are going through as an organization. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience on the future of our planet. For this episode, we welcome Matt Webb, Head of Enterprise Data Management at UK Power Networks, the electricity distribution network operator covering Southeast England, the East of England and London, representing 30,000 square kilometers and approximately 8 million customers. We discuss the role of data across the asset lifecycle, from asset planning through to asset management, the complex energy challenges associated with industry growth areas like electric vehicles, and how data can support with this, the concept of smart grids, what the world of distributed energy looks like, and lots more. One of the particularly interesting points I picked up during my conversation with Matt is how advanced his UK Power Networks team is in their data and digital maturity. Now, I won't go as far as comparing their level of maturity to other UK energy companies, but thinking about the built environment on a wider scale, it's clear that the extent to which data is managed and leveraged in the decision-making process positions UKPN as a market leader. And I think there's a lot to be learned from Matt and his team. One final quick point before I pass over to Matt. If I may ask a favor, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now. Let's welcome Matt. So Matt Webb, I'm Head of Enterprise Data Management at UK Power Networks, which is the electrical distribution network and system operator covering the southeast of England, including London. My role is principally around the oversight and strategy definition implementation of our data governance management and engineering capabilities across the organization. The energy industry is fascinatingly complex. Just for the benefit of folks listening who maybe aren't as familiar with the energy market, would you mind just maybe giving a little bit of framing and context to what the process looks like for from asset planning all the way through to asset management for, for you and the rest of your team at UKPN? Yeah, so inherently we are an asset management organization. We're an asset intensive business. So we have a very large physical asset out there that obviously requires a, a significant amount of design, planning, oversight, coordination, technical delivery, maintenance, inspection, and it, it goes on and on. And, and data inherently is, is the lifeblood that thro- flows through that. So ultimately we have a, a legacy asset, which we need to have a visibility and understanding of. So how is it performing? What's its condition? When do we need to invest in some way, shape or form, whether that's maintenance related or replacement? To what extent is it being utilized and what's the forecast growth and in, in likely increase of that use? So are we going to see development of say housing or commercial or industry type connections, which means the legacy asset in five, 10 years time may no longer be fit for purpose. So we need to be looking ahead as far as possible and thinking about all those dynamic factors, the condition, the utilization, and the way in which the network is going to be used and to make sure we're investing in the right way at the right time to one, maintain quality of service, but also to ensure we meet the prevailing and future needs of our stakeholders. And our entire organization is, is very much set up around those requirements, but the different external factors which are influencing some of those decisions are fundamentally changing. And I know that as an organization, area that you cover includes London and one of the big transport priorities for the minute in London is electric vehicles. He's plugged into the grid 
as well as the electrification of buses, etc. I'm personally a really big fan of electric vehicles. I'm fascinated by the process you'd go through to identify new connections that you need to be plugged into the grid. What does the data story look like for you in reality, for an example, like electric vehicles? Yeah, so, so the electrification of transport is, is obviously a very, very hot topic on several fronts at present. In, in terms of the, the nature of how we need to prepare ourselves and, and, and prepare the network for, for that prevailing growth, which ultimately for us is, is what we describe as load growth. It's an increase in, in the demand on our network. And there's different factors. So where you are looking at more commercial type applications, such as bus fleets, for instance, they will generally have centralized charging or centralized depots with charging facilities, which will come into us as a fairly conventional connection application, similar to what you'll see with any commercial or industrial request, but clearly the makeup of their load demand is from the charging points rather than heavy machinery and the like. Where it gets a bit more complex for us and even more challenging is when you're looking at the organic domestic growth of electric vehicles. So for instance, if you have an affluent area of, of, of West London, which has you know, relatively old, already quite heavily utilized network that has over a short period of time, a number of individual properties that decide to purchase an electric vehicle, have an EV charging point installed, the aggregation of that increase in point load, you know, can be quite significant in terms of the legacy infrastructure that's there. And to have the intelligence and the foresight of where that growth is going to happen can be quite complex. It's far harder to ascertain that in advance than it is to have a pipeline of point connections at the larger end of the spectrum as per the connections, the commercial use cases. So really it, it comes down to our ability to undertake probabilistic modeling where we consider a, a number of different factors, obviously having intelligence around our own network, its location, its existing capacity, its condition, its performance, but layering on that certain factors that might indicate the likelihood of increased uptake of electric vehicles. So the demographics of, of that area, the type of households, do they have off road parking? Are they in higher income level? All these different things and, and you know, trying to be as, as visionary as possible, really, to think about what are those indicative factors. So a useful resource we've used in this respect is energy performance certificates that holds information about the type of property to consider, are there elements within those data sets that are openly available to us that might give an indication of increased likelihood of electric vehicle uptake? And it's by trying to combine those different leading indicators, some being more tenuous than others, that you can then, if you think about it as a, as, as a map, as a, from a geospatial analytics point of view, you can start to consider a heat map where you expect there to be greater intensity, greater likelihood of electric vehicle uptake that can help inform and justify our investment in the infrastructure ahead of those applications coming in. That's amazing. And again, it's just such a complex challenge within the built environment. And it's, it's fascinating to hear your approach to actually starting to almost predict the future needs of, of society, et cetera. You've given a few examples, but really interested to understand where all of this data sits. What does that data environment look like for you? So, so along with the complexity of the, the, the network and how it operates, our data landscape has become more complex. We have assets that are decades old. So some of our data that relates to those assets is, is an equivalent age. So we have, you know, quite mature and robust asset registration processes, as we refer to them. And that's a combination of tabulated data, telling things like the make and manufacture model of the equipment and so on. We have a geospatial information system, which effectively gives us the map and the connectivity model of our network. So that's the location and how those assets are associated and their topology. And then we have alongside that control systems, which gives us a schematic view. And it's about the interoperability and how we have the oversight of 
the status in real time or near real time of the network and, and basically operate, control and monitor from that. Supplementary to that are planning systems, which off of those data sets I was just mentioning and where we start to model and forecast and simulate, if you like, if we extend the network here, what does that look like and how does that perform? What impact does that have on the existing network? And those are all very much internal data sets. Beyond that, we have, you know, traditional domains like our finance, customer data sets and so on, which we certainly come together for some of the analysis we're talking about. But what we're seeing more and more is the use of the procurement and the ingestion of third-party data sets, some of which will be openly available, some of which will be from similar infrastructure owner-operator organizations, others which will procure, especially when it comes to the type of scenario we're just talking about in the context of electric vehicles. We want to gain as much intelligence as possible. And many of those data sets that we are referring to are proprietary data sets that aren't necessarily freely and openly available. So therefore we have to procure. But, uh, you know, a key challenge for us is to understand what that external ecosystem looks like because it's just endless. So the, the more we can understand about what's available to us, how we can access it, how we can integrate it um, as expediently as possible to get meaningful insight. That's where the transition has come, I think, where conventionally in the past, we were very much internally focused on what we needed to know about our asset and our connected customer. That's so much broader now. And, you know, the, the types of data sets are endless and it's commercial data. So for instance, again, referring to the EV use case, can we look at things like CarWow and where people are placing inquiries about potential electric vehicle purchase to layer that in with our data to say, okay, we're seeing a, a density of activity and inquiries within a certain geography. Does that indicate that we may have an increased uptake within the next 12, 24 plus months for electric vehicles? Similarly, we look at a lot of environmental related data, meteorological data, data sets from the environment agency, but they're more in the context of network resilience, storm forecasting, flood events, ground conditions that may impact the integrity of the existing asset. And it goes on and on. And it's, as I say, it's about understanding that ecosystem, but thinking about how we integrate them with our existing information, with our existing data to, to, to gain new, richer insights and to inform better decision-making. And thinking more about that point of really understanding the, the ecosystem around UKPN, I imagine the, you're thinking a lot about how you can leverage data to help you with the, the world of distributed energy. So solar panels, et cetera, another source of, source of energy, connecting them onto the grid. What does that environment look like for you at the minute? So, so as an industry, the, the, the transition we're going through, people talk about the transition from distribution network operation, to distribution system operation. And that is effectively moving from our legacy operating model where we design, constructed, maintained, and operated the network in a, in a relatively passive way. The operational aspect of the business was really responding to faults and defects and restoring supplies as quickly as possible or planned outages for network expansion or maintenance. System operation is in response to the fact that the whole energy ecosystem is becoming increasingly complex. So distributed energy resources or DER, as you'll hear them referred to, are a generalization for solar panels, wind farms, you know, commercial and domestic level. We have an increasing likelihood of battery storage becoming more common on the network. The electrification of transport is part of that picture, the electrification of heat, and it goes on and on. And effectively what this amounts to is the fact that traditionally you had centralized generation passing the electricity through the transmission network onto the distribution network down to the customer. Very predictable, uh, one-way flow of electricity and, and quite a, a static, stable system. That's in reflection of the fact that with these distributed energy resources liberating at every single level of the network, the flow of electricity, the way we 
marketplace demand on the system is fundamentally different. So we can get effectively what's referred to as reverse power flow. So that's where the level of generation at a local level, right down to the lower voltage domestic connections, may outstrip demand and electricity flows in the opposite direction to what the network was originally designed. So therefore, that monitoring and control aspect isn't just relevant at the higher voltage level of the network, it's relevant across the whole piece. So ultimately, the intelligence that we need to have, so that visibility of the network, what it's doing both here and now from an operational standpoint, but how it's likely to be behaving in the short, medium and long term again, is, is increasingly important. And that's why we're going through this transition of network operation to system operation. And the data that's required to achieve that, whether it's from IoT type devices across our network or modeling that we apply to predict and anticipate the behaviors of the network, when we're going to see load growth, when we're going to see increased demand, how we need to balance flow and so on is, is fundamentally different. So that's the transition that we are going through as an organization. Connected to that is the evolution of the stakeholder ecosystem around the network. So all of these DR assets have their own owners and operators. So whether it's a domestic customer or commercial entity that's, you know, established a new wind farm and, and wants to connect or operate and so on. So for us, we need to have the ability to interact, engage, and communicate with all those different stakeholders in an expedient way. And, and the buzzword in the industry at the moment is interoperability. And that's talking about the ability for us to exchange data to and from those different stakeholders to have an understanding of their asset, how it's performing in relation to our network and, and vice versa, so that we can make sure that they, taking a wind farm as, as an example, that they are able to maintain their operations output onto the network and increase or, or lower output based on prevailing conditions. And that interoperability of the network ultimately comes down to our, our ability as a sector to standardize, to align on consistent data models and the language and the terminology we use so that, so the more you can standardize, the better you facilitate that intelligence and automation across the whole system. And this move towards more of a connected, smart grid, what type of specific technologies do you see playing a really key role in enabling this smart grid of the future? Technology is a very broad term. And I think in reality, technology from a hardware perspective and, and software perspective already exists for a, a lot of what we, we need. It's about how we utilize it and, and more how we join it together, really. So with individual organizations within energy, we've got a history of moving from the public to the private sector of mergers and acquisitions and the internal landscape can often be quite complex. You've got a legacy of different systems and technologies with varying levels of integration and, and, and standardization amongst them. So for a long time as individual organizations, we've been going through that journey about how we get our systems, like those I mentioned before, architected in a way that makes them as interoperable as possible. And technology is advancing in that respect with APIs, application programming interfaces being seen as a really key vehicle to help facilitate that integration, the coordination effectively of data across those systems. What we're seeing at a sector level is really an extension of that, but increasingly complex because you've got so many different organizations with their own complex data landscapes or their own system landscapes, which again, need to, to communicate and interact with each other. So that's why the interoperability and that standardization is really key. And again, application programming interfacing, I think is a, is a really, really important aspect of, of how we achieve that. The more we can align to that type of integration architecture, the better our ability to facilitate that exchange and that coordination, that orchestration across the whole energy ecosystem and beyond from a whole whole system perspective. We, we speak an awful lot about digital twins. So our distribution management system is a digital representation of our electrical network that allows us to have 
various levels of insight on different degrees of latency, which we then use to interact with and operate that that network. So it gives you that, that intelligence and, and insight into what the physical world's doing. You can model, you can do scenario-based analysis. You can automate response and control and, and intelligence. To get to that point, you absolutely need the data to be structured and joined up in a way that's possible with these standardized exchange mechanisms in place. But it comes down to that interoperability. It's really key. So I think it's more about the data than it is the systems. But absolutely, when it comes to more sophisticated things like digital twin, it still comes down to the data. And that point around interoperability sounds as though it's been a real key learning. With your UKPN digital strategy being released this Thursday, really interested to understand what other learnings you've had over the last year and also where you think maybe some of the gaps are still yet to be cracked. Yeah, so our digitalization strategy, it's, it's something that's been developed over the past two to three years now and has evolved and iterated as a result of learnings, as a result of very extensive engagement with, with our stakeholders. Digitalization is not something new. I think there's that risk that we, we treat it as this new shiny at the box thing that's just been created, but we've been digitalizing along with every part of our, our world for, for decades now, really. And what we're trying to do is, is understand how we digitalize, not just as a standalone organization, but digitalize as, as part of this sector. So really one of the key learnings that I think I and we within UK Paranormal have, have taken away is the importance of collaboration with our peers, with our stakeholders to make sure that we're developing something that, that works in totality. Success is not down to individual organizations succeeding. It's about how we get the whole energy ecosystem, to use that term again, really operating, how we can interact with other sectors such as transport, such as telecom, such as the water industry and so on, because that's, that's where the real strength of, of digitalization and by extension interoperability comes in, where you get all of those things interacting with uh, a degree of visibility and coordination and automation and intelligence, which just gets the whole thing singing, because that's where you start to deliver true opportunities around efficiency, around decarbonization, and it goes on and on. As with any part of the world, there's always that risk where you, you drive in a certain direction in isolation, and you might end up with some really, really great products, outcomes, services, and products, or services, solutions, and products, but they, they fall short in terms of potential value because they don't necessarily work in a broader context for all of your stakeholders or everybody you're trying to serve. So that's what we've really, really tried to major on. However, all of that said, it's very much easier said than done when you're in such a complex environment to make that happen. So we've very much been led by that. We engage very heavily with, with our peers and, and, and other organizations, with our stakeholders in order to try and understand what they want in this. So there's a, a long established standard within energy distribution and, and transmission called the common information model on an IEC standard. And we're learning about how we can better utilize that. And does that give us a convenient vehicle by which we can start more effective data exchange? And it's, it's a complex thing. And again, in that respect, a, a key learning is, is to start small. And then I think another key learning is there's that inclination when you talk about digital to focus on technology and data, which obviously very, very important. There's a third leg to the stool, and that is what we regard as people, the human component in digital. We can have the best systems and technology. We can have the highest quality, most reliable, most interoperable data in the world. If you haven't got it shaped and accessible and consumable in a way, and the, and the end user bought into it, then you failed. It's that human component that is probably most key, but also very often the, the, the hardest thing to deliver. I'd love to just pick up on that point around people. I think 
looking at your organization, it's fair to say that you're, you're reasonably mature in your digitalization journey. For folks listening that maybe aren't as far into the future as, as you are, what advice would you give to people who maybe see some of the challenges related to the, the people pillar within digital transformation? Yeah, I mean, when, when you talk about that human component, there's, there's various aspects to it. So capability, first of all. So when you're going through the type of transition we are and you're trying to develop your understanding and deliver and implement new advanced capabilities, clearly you need the people, one that can envisage that, two can design it, three can build and then operate it. And given the, the, the pace at which technology advances and digitalization is happening, it's very, very difficult to keep pace. So in the media at the moment, you can't avoid the buzz around artificial intelligence, chat GPT and open AI and large language modeling. You know, it seems every day there's a, there's a new article in there. And, and obviously there's an awful lot of hype, but the reality is there's real substance to that. And it's, it provides a good example of, I think there's a, an inherent nervousness around, is that going to run away ahead of us being able to understand the impact on people and the capabilities that we need within our businesses to exploit it? Or if we don't have the capabilities, what are the risks? And I think all we can do is just be as inquisitive as possible and try to keep abreast of latest developments and the direction of travel across this piece but have a clear strategy in place about how you build that inherent capability supplemented by the appropriate partners across your supply chain. So there's that capability piece. There's then the impact component. So again, the AI example gives a really good demonstration of how digital can be very positive, but it can have a, a negative connotation at least, if not a negative impact. So in implementing increasingly intelligent automated system, it can have an impact on your existing workforce. One in terms of their ability to utilize access and exploit certain technologies, but also does it render their job redundant? And that's one of the key things that you hear in the media at the moment. And that is a challenge when you are trying to keep a workforce motivated and focused and delivering. It can be very threatening and demotivating and people will be disrupted by that. And it's about how do you, one, anticipate and try and understand and empathize with those concerns and perceived risks. But also, how do you help to shine a light on, on the realities and try and avoid some of the, the, the hype, if that makes sense? And I don't think there's any, any secret source about how you tackle that. I think it's about good engagement, good communication in, in, in both directions. And then ultimately, there's the, a third component to the, the human aspect, and that's about the user experience, the acceptance, the adoption, again, the ability to use. We have to think about things like digital exclusion. So, you know, we've got a very broad customer base. And we could put some great services in place, but not necessarily that can be accessed and utilized by everybody. So we need to be really, really conscious of, okay, how do we make sure we continue to offer access to our services and products that still caters for those people that aren't digitally native or have other specific needs that need to be considered as well as allowing ourselves to move forwards. I think in the, the world of, of digital transformation, technology and data, et cetera, so easy to get sucked into the excitement and the buzz of these new capabilities coming to market. And it's often easy to overlook really the most important factor, which is people and ultimately just making people's lives a little bit easier and bringing everyone along for the journey. So I think it's such an important point to finish on. Matt, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed it. And with that, I'll leave you to it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, do give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. Thanks and goodbye.